series. We are in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're going to cover the first 18 verses, Psalm 139. I've titled the message this morning, The God Who Knows Us. The God Who Knows Us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the privilege of gathering together with your people and to worship you, to sing songs together to you in worship. And thank you for what you've already done so far. Thank you for the precious baptism that we got to witness. And we thank you, Lord, that you are doing your work in your people, and we rejoice in that. And I pray, God, as we open your word today, that you would help us to behold wondrous things in your word. That we, we would see who you are, would see your power and your majesty, and it would cause us to worship you even more. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So an old seminary professor comes to watch one of his old students preach. Seminary professor was a professor of preaching, and so he taught young men how to preach. He taught them what God's Word says about preaching, but that he also taught them how to preach and the way to preach and, and what is, uh, what's, what's good, what's bad, what you shouldn't do, what you should do. And so he was a professor of preaching at a seminary. And so he goes to watch one of his former students preach. And so he, the former student knew that his old professor was there. It was the first time that he got to preach in front of his mentor, in front of his hero. And so the, the, the young student preaches his first sermon in front of the professor. And so, you know, he gets through it and he can't wait to the end of the, of the message to hear what the professor might say to him. And so the professor comes and meets the, the young man at, at the end of the message and he tells him this. He says, I'll never listen to you preach again. And the young student felt like he, he lost his lunch in that moment. He was so upset. I, what, what, what do you mean, he says? What, what do you mean you'll never listen to me again? He said, I'll only listen to my former students preach one time. He said, and I'm looking for one answer to one question that I have. And here's the question I'm seeking to answer by listening to them preach one time. Are they a big godder or are they a little godder? Do they believe in a big God or do they, do they believe in a little God? And it only takes me one sermon to figure it out. He said, and I'm here to tell you, I think you believe in a big God. And so that question that that professor had, that hypothetical professor and a hypothetical student, that question I asked to you, what is your view of God? How do you see God? Do you believe in a big God or do you believe in a, in a small God? Do your prayers and the way you pray, your lack of prayer, or your prayers, do they betray your view of God as a big God, a capable God, an able God, a powerful God? Or does your life, your prayers, your devotion, does it reveal that you have a wrong view of God, a small view of God? We will either be Christians who see God as big as He is, and powerful and in charge, or we will have a wrong, faulty view of God. And, and in this psalm today, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see a view of God. A.W. Tozer famously said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so in this text, the psalmist David, he's going to help us to have a proper view of God. 
And, and, and in essence, what we're going to do here in this message is, is we're going to do some kind of the, theology proper here, some, the, some theological proper study. We're going to look at some attributes of God. There are three attributes of God that the psalmist David reveals to us through his psalm, through his song. And these are three powerful attributes that, that really impact, should impact not only our understanding of who God is, but it should impact the way that we live our lives. And I just want to say this before we jump into the text. Whatever your view of God is, if, if you have a right view of God and you see God for who he is, the scripture has revealed him to be, if, if your right theology does not lead to, to life transformation, then you, we've missed the point. If our right understanding of God does not impact our life, then we haven't really understood properly. And so what we're going to see in this text is three realities about God. Or said another way, three attributes of God from Psalm 139. So three attributes of God. That's what we're going to do. Three attributes of God from Psalm 139. And the first attribute that we're going to see is that God's knowledge lacks nothing. God's knowledge lacks nothing. Let's look at the text of a to see a God whose knowledge, whose understanding lacks nothing. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So the psalmist David here, in these six verses, this first stanza, there's kind of three stanzas to this psalm that we're going to look at this morning. In this first stanza, the psalmist David is speaking here of God's perfect knowledge. He's saying, he's saying, He's saying, oh, Lord, you have searched me and you, you, you have known me. You know when I rise. You know when I sit down. You know you are acquainted. You search out my ways. You are acquainted with all my ways, right? So the psalmist David is speaking of God's perfect knowledge. And theologians have a, have a word for describing God's perfect knowledge. It's the word omniscient. Omniscient. And that's the attribute of God, the first one we're going to look at here today, the omniscience of God. Omniscient simply means omni, means means all, means, it means everything, everywhere. It means it's, 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 it's full, it's, it's, it's omni, and then it's all, and it's science, omniscient, science, which means knowledge, all knowledge. God has all knowledge. He's all-knowing. And so what does this perfect knowledge of God look like? We, we just read the six verses, but I think verse 4 really drives it home for us really clearly when we're thinking about God's perfect knowledge. God can have knowledge, right? And we can have knowledge. But there's something that's different between our knowledge and God's knowledge. Is that God has what would be called pre-knowledge. Before knowledge. Look at verse 4. The psalmist says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Have you ever thought you could read your, your wife's mind, husbands? Or have you stopped trying to, trying to do that? Right. Have you ever been around a know-it-all? Now, no, I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm talking about somebody else. Right? Have you ever been around somebody who is a know-it-all? I'm not talking about you teenagers either. I'm talking about really a know-it-all. Really, the only one that can claim to be a know-it-all would be God. And, and his knowledge goes so far beyond surface knowledge. And, and the psalmist does say, 
in those first few verses, you know all my ways, you know my lying down and my rising up, you, you know all the things I'm going to do, but, but you know, the psalmist says, what I am going to say before the words are even on my tongue. That's a knowledge beyond any of the knowledge that we could ever have. This is one of the things that separates God from his creation is that God has perfect knowledge. How amazing is that to think about? God is omniscient. He has perfect knowledge. He lacks nothing. Even before, even before, and I, I, my wife, we were joking, I was going over the message uh, last night with her, and she said, you know, there's some people who would like to know what you would say before you say it, because sometimes you say maybe what you shouldn't say, right? How many of you are talkers like I am? You, you start, words start kind of coming out of your mouth, and you, oh my goodness, how, I can't get that back. God knows all the things I'm going to say before I even say it, even before. And what, what's beautiful about this perfect knowledge is that it's, it's not just this all-encompassing knowledge of all of humanity, though, though that is true. It's personal. And this is the point. This is a psalm written by David. This is a psalm where he's revealing his understanding of God and God's relationship with him. It's a personal knowledge. Listen to the four affirmations of God's perfect and personal knowledge of us. You know my thoughts. You know my path. You know my lying down. You know all my ways. You know everything. You know, there's some people who don't like this idea of God's foreknowledge, his prior knowledge, his perfect knowledge. It, it makes them uncomfortable. And in some ways, if you stop and you think about it and you dwell on the omniscience of God, there are a lot of rabbit holes in your brain that you can go down when you think about human suffering and evil and pain. And it's hard to wrap our human understanding around how God knows everything from the beginning before there was time until the end of time. He knows all that will happen. So not only is it this global knowledge of the past, the present, and the future, but it's this personal knowledge. And there's some people who don't want to believe in a God like that. They want to believe in a God who gains knowledge, who's figuring things out as he goes along, or he's responding to information as he gets it. But, but, but that's not true. I love what Augustine says about God. A God who doesn't know the future is not God at all. A God who doesn't know the future is not God at all. So this idea of a tunnel of time God who looks down into the tunnel of time and, and he sees what humanity does, so then he reacts to what his, he knows of what they will do, that, that's, that's not the God that we know. He has perfect knowledge of everything and everyone that who would ever be born and every decision that they will ever make. And we, we're going to see this as we go along in this psalm, the, the perfect knowledge of God. You know, there's a few things when we understand God's perfect knowledge, few words that can never be said by, by God. God, you'll never hear God say, I never saw that coming. Wow. Where'd that come from? Right? He'll, 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 he'll never say that. Or you'll never hear God say this. What am I going to do now? My goodness, look at, look at what's going on in America. What am I going to do now? Or, or you'll never hear God say this. I need more information before I can make a decision. You know, those are all things that we say, right? What are we going to do? Oh, no, I don't know what to do. <laughs> this has totally caught me by surprise. This is the point that the psalmist is making, that, that, that this, this, this first stanza, Psalm 139, is, is, is that not only 
Does God know everything about all 8 billion people on planet Earth? And he does. He has perfect knowledge of all 8 billion people on planet Earth. But the point the psalmist is making is that he knows me. He knows me. The omniscience of God, though it can be a terrifying reality when we think about it, God knows me. He knows all about me. He knows my thoughts. He knows what what I'm going to say before I say it. But this is what the psalmist is getting at. He's acquainted with all of my ways. You know, this perfect knowledge of God that we're seeing in Psalm 139, it's all over the Bible. I mean, I could have had a, a whole list of scriptures that I could have read to you. But for the sake of time and, and your hungry belly, let's look at just a few. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is the Lord and abundant in power. Actually, let me be, let me be honest. For the sake of time and my hungry belly, uh, we'll just read a few. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is what? Beyond Beyond measure. You can't measure his understanding. Uh, um, uh, Job 37, 16. Do you know the balancing of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is what? Who is perfect in knowledge. I love what Romans eleven thirty four says. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God does not need counseling from us to help us in our situations. God, God if... If, if you just knew what was going on, can I tell you what's going on? I think if you knew what was going on, then maybe you would be able to understand how to, how, to, how to handle it. Who has been the counselor of the Lord? God doesn't need a counselor. I love this story of Jesus, who is God in the flesh. I love this story of Jesus. Jesus calls Nathaniel in John chapter 1. We studied this a while back in John 1. Listen to this. It says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus looks at Nathaniel and makes a judgment call of something inside of him because the deceit is an internal issue. And he says of Nathaniel, there's no deceit in him. What does Nathaniel say? How do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus had perfect knowledge. He knew who Nathaniel was before Nathaniel was born. He created Nathaniel. He knew what was in his heart, and he knew where he was when he thought no one else saw where he was. And what did Nathaniel say after? He said, behold, my God, and he worshiped Jesus. So God knows all. He sees all, and no one can hide from his knowledge. No one can give him more knowledge than he already possesses. He knows the end from the beginning. He is not shocked by anything. He lacks nothing. I think some of this is a little terrifying at times, don't you think? We talked about last week, Psalm 51, about secret sins and sins we try to cover up. And so when it comes to these realities, it can be a little terrifying that, you know, that God kind of sees all and knows all. We, we attribute that to Santa Claus. He knows, sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. But Santa Santa's not omniscient. He's not even real. God of the universe who is real, he is omniscient. And so, you know, in our society today, we're all nervous about Big Brother, aren't we? Right? Big Brother, you know, Siri's listening to you. You know, she, she, he, whatever Siri is, is listening to you. And we're worried about hidden cameras and Big Brother and, and, you know, somebody's watching us, they're listening to us. What about that song? I always feel like somebody's... Okay, you guys, you guys didn't... Right? We're, We're nervous about that, right? And in some sense, it's true. Somebody's always watching us, and it's God. He knows every secret thing, every secret moment. 
And that can be terrifying. It can be humbling to understand that God knows everything we do in secret. He knows every thought we think. But why, and while this aspect of the perfect knowledge of God is true, it's absolutely true, this, I don't believe, is the primary context of what David is saying here. I think the primary context of what David is saying here would be more like this. We're thinking about God's perfect knowledge. He knows all of my ways. He's acquainted with everything in my life. I think that the, the context of what David is saying here would be like the camera, not the Big Brother camera, but the camera that a mom or a dad place in the room of a newborn baby that's sleeping in the crib. And that camera is positioned perfectly so that that parent can hear every cry, can see every distress, can in a moment's time know whenever that child needs their help, when that child is hungry, when that child is upset. And we would never think twice about that camera, wouldn't we? Because that camera is a camera of comfort, of care, of protection, of love, of devotion. And I think this is the context of the psalmist David is saying. He's saying, God, you know, you are omniscient. You know everything about me. You know when I rise up. You know when I lie down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. You know me. And I think verse 5 and 6 give us a picture of what we're talking about here. It's not this knowledge that is terrifying. It's a knowledge that is comforting. Look at verse 5. You hem me in before and behind, and you lay your hand upon me. What does that mean? The two phrases there. You hem me in before and behind and you lay your hand upon me. I love what it means in the original languages when you study it out. The, word, the phrase you hem me in is a military strategy to protect, to guard, or to cover. So when David is saying, God, you know all of my ways, you see all of my life, and he says, you hem me in before and behind. He is talking about the perfect knowledge of God to protect his life. You care about me so much that you go before me and you are behind me. You hem me in. And, and I love the phrase, the second phrase, you lay your hand upon me. That phrase means that it comes from a feeling of devotion that leads to action. So the hand of God that is on our life, in protection and guidance and love and care and the devotion it comes. It's this picture of, of a love and a devotion that leads to action. And God has his hand upon us. He goes before us and he is behind us. Amen? You see the difference? When we read a psalm like that, we can, we can feel that sense of, of fear and anxiety. Like, oh, God, you know everything. But we talked about that last week in Psalm 51. Yeah, God does know everything. And may we live a life of repentance and may we never think we can hide from God. But I love this picture in Psalm 139. God knows everything. He, he learns nothing. He has perfect knowledge of every situation and every person. But this perfect knowledge from a perfect God has come to rest upon me. He places his hand on me. He places his hand on me. Do you believe that? His, the hand of God is on you. He's with you because he knows you. So what is your view of God today? You see him, do you know him as omniscient, as all-knowing? He knows all about you. No prayer that you pray, no cry that you cry, no situation that you face is out from under the hand of God on your life. Amen? So what is your view of God? Well, we know God's knowledge lacks nothing. He's omniscient. Secondly, this morning from Psalm 139, God's presence knows no boundary. Look at the text. Back at the text, verse 7. The psalmist now says, where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Amen? So the psalmist David starts off by saying, Lord, you know everything. You just don't know everything about all 8 billion people in the world, though you do. You just don't know everything about every situation in human history and, and what was going to happen and what will happen. You, you, you hold time in your hands, but God, you know me. You know my life. Your hand is upon me. You know everyone. You know me. So God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Now we see that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent. He is everywhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go to the place of the dead and to the depths, you're there. To Sheol. If I take the wings in the morning, you're there. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He's omnipresent. He's, he's, he's everywhere at the same time. It's everywhere at the same time. I think the heart of what the psalmist David is saying here, as he's building upon the omniscience of God, thinking about the omnipresence of God, I think verse 7 is the heart of what he's saying here. Look back to verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? What David is saying here, David is saying, I can't run from God. That's what he's getting at right here. He's saying, God, you know all about me. You have perfect knowledge. I can't hide from you. And I can't run from you. If I thought I could run from you, if I had in my mind, I'm going to run from God. The point that David is saying here, he's saying, where could I possibly flee from your spirit? Where could I go? Is there anywhere I could go to get away from your presence, God? And what's his answer to his own question? He's nowhere. And he gives the most extreme examples. He says, if I would go all the way to heaven, God, I know you're there. If I would go all the way down to the place of the dead, Sheol, to the depths, you're there. If I would ride the wings of the, of the wind, you're there. If I would swim into the depths of the ocean, behold God, north, south, east, west, wherever I would possibly try to go, if I would ever run from you, attempt to run from you, I cannot escape you. Did you guys follow that? Isn't that beautiful? David's saying, I, I can't run from you. I can't escape your reach. As hard as we might try, we can't run from God. As hard as we try, we can't run hard enough or far enough to escape God. Why? Because God is everywhere. Any runners here today? Maybe you're a physical runner and you run a 5K or you run a 10K or you run a marathon, whatever. I'm not a runner, uh, uh, I, I'm just not there yet in my life physically. And, 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 and I've, I've tried at times to, 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 to run from God. And how many spiritual runners do we have here today? You, you ever tried to run from God? I, I want you to know right now, you'll never be able to outrun God. This is what the psalmist is saying. No matter how far you try to run, run from your sin, run from consequences, run away from responsibility, 
God, you, you, you certainly wouldn't want to be around me because of all the things that I've done. I'm going to run away from God, or run away from God's people and, and God's house. I'm going to try to get away. I don't care how far or how hard you run, God is there wherever you end up. His presence is there. His mercy is there. His power is there. Because God is everywhere. He's everywhere. Now, just a little caveat here. Just bring some clarification. There's a, there's a, there's a. You know, we have the view, the, the knowledge of that God is omnipresent. But what omni, the omnipresence of God is not pantheism. Pantheism is the idea. This is what pantheism is. Pantheism, uh, pantheists believe that the, the the divine dwells within everyone and every created thing. So that's kind of a, a flip side of the omnipresence of God. It's an idolatry. It means that everything is divine. That's what pantheism is. Here's what pantheism means. The trees are divine. The stars are divine. People are divine. Biblical Christianity, rather, says the trees point to God. The stars point to God. The image of God in humanity points to God. That's what it means that God is everywhere. Not that everything, everywhere I go, when when I'm looking at the tree, I see God because the tree is God. Or when I'm at the ocean, look at the ocean, there's divinity in the ocean, and so there's God. No, everything around us points to God. God is everywhere. You can't escape God. You cannot escape God. The psalmist is pointing to the reality that God is everywhere. There is nowhere in all of his creation that someone can escape him. But people have tried to escape God. You remember in Genesis chapter 3? Look at verse 8. Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden, as if that was possible. Can you imagine that? Like, we we get it now, right? The idea that you could actually try to hide from God. And God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Can you imagine? Oh, I didn't think you'd be able to find me. People have tried to run from God. What about Jonah? God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Preach repentance. Call them. To repent, what, what, what happened? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, Jonah chapter 1, and call out against it for their evil deeds. Their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose. Did he, ro- did he rise to obey? No, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. You know, when you run from God, sometimes it costs you money. Sometimes it costs you time. It's going to cost you something when you run from God, but you can't escape him. He paid a fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What a fruitless adventure. What a fruitless venture. What a waste of money. I'm going to flee and get away from God. I'm going to pay money to do it. You know, the truth is, is that by nature, we're all runners. All of us are. I may not be running marathons, but by nature, I'm a runner. We all run from God. We're runners by nature. We want to get away from God. We want to get away from accountability. We don't want to be told that God is real, that God's word is true, and that I'm accountable to any type of uh, uh, objective standard of morality. So we are by nature, in our sinful nature, we're by nature runners. The beautiful thing of the gospel is that though we may be by nature runners, God is by nature a runner as well. He is a runner who seeks after us. Amen? That's what we read earlier. That's what we talked about earlier. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. One of the the names of God is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means what? God with 
us. And here we are on planet Earth running in all our different ways, trying to escape God's presence. And God breaks through humanity and he comes down and he walks among us to seek us. A humanity that is full of runners, trying to escape God. Even as believers, we're prone to wonder. I, I love the refrain from the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But may we be reminded, may we be reminded of Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? And, and, and here's the point. Here's the point. What I, I think just in the same way the first stanza has, 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 a, has, a, has, a, has a deeper, profound meaning, I think, I think the, the, the point is this. David is not saying he's trying to escape God. He's saying it's impossible to. He's saying if, if I would even think about trying to run from God, I cannot do it. He's expressing the reality that he can't, and, and, and it's a comforting reality, is it not? That we can't get away from God no, how, no matter how hard we try. And some of you, I want to speak to some of you runners today. Some of you have tried to run from God. You tried to get away from him, and maybe you, you ran here, and this is kind of your last effort here. You're running, and you got here. Somebody invited you, and you're here, and you've been a runner all your life. Today, God has you exactly where he wants you. He is a God that is omniscient. He knows everything about you, and he's here, and he is seeking you today. And he's calling you by your name to come and to follow him, to become his disciple, to repent of your sins, and to believe in the gospel, and to stop the fruitless attempt to run from his presence. You know, people will often say, you know, I can't find God. I've looked everywhere. I've looked inward. There's nothing there. I've looked in other people and relationships, nothing there. But the truth is, is that God really is everywhere. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork and day to day it pours out speech. What is the speech that the creation declares day to day? The speech of creation pours out re the revelation that God is real and that God is here. He has placed his imprint and his stamp on his creation, on the earth and on the galaxies and on you and me. Day to day it pours out speech. Night to night it reveals knowledge. When I look at the at the sun, I see God. When I look at the stars and the moon, I see the handiwork of God. It declares his reality. So here's the truth. God's omniscient. He knows everything. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So here's the truth. God is so high, you can't get over him. God is so wide, you can't get around him. And God is so low, you can't get under him. So everywhere I go, three things are true. And everywhere you go, three things are true. God is behind me, encouraging me. God is beside me, protecting me. And God is in front of me, guiding me. Amen? It's the truth of what I think the psalmist David is saying. He's behind and he's beside and he's in front. He's all around. God's knowledge lacks nothing. God's presence knows no boundary. 
omniscience, omnipresence. And lastly, third attribute of God in Psalm 139, God's power has no limit. Look back to the text. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God's omniscient, God's omnipresent, and God is omnipotent, omnipotent, omni, all, potent, power. God is all powerful. God's power has no limit. His knowledge, his knowledge, he gains nothing in knowledge, right? His, his presence knows no boundary, and he has no limit to his power. He's omnipotent. Human beings have limits, don't we? Have you run up against your limits from time to time? You run up against your limits. You know, me and Mr. Jimmy, you know, we tried to work out for a little while, and I fall off, fall off, I fell off the wagon. And me and, you know, I'm bench pressing, but Jimmy's got a little bit more of a, of, of a weight tolerance than I do. I've got a quicker limit. Have you seen his biceps lately? But even Mr. Jimmy has limits. I, don't, I know that's shocking, but even Mr. Jimmy has limits with what he can lift, right? All of us have limits because we're humans. Think about the elected officials that we have in our world today. They're all going to term limit out, right? They're going to term limit out. And even the Supreme Court justices, they're not elected, they're appointed. So every elected official that's been given power, they are term limited. They, they eventually, their power will end. But God cannot term limit out of power. Aren't you happy about that? Our God, the God of creation, will not term limit out of power. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. My power's finished. I'm going to leave it up to you guys. Truth is, is that God's the one who gives humans the authority that they have on earth. And the psalmist is describing in this third stanza, I think the psalmist describes in this third stanza why, listen, why we can say that God has complete and total power. Look, look back to what we just read. What does the psalmist say that God has the power to do? Here's what I think the psalmist is saying as to why God has all power. Here's the two things that he talks about. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Secondly, you wrote out the boundaries of my days before they began, meaning that you say I'm going to be born here, and you say I'm going to die here. You set up the boundaries of my existence on earth. You formed me. You knit me together. Every life is precious and valuable and worth fighting for and defending. That's why we believe abortion is evil and that it's murder of a human life because God's the one who created it. And then secondly, he has given that span of life to every human being that's born. So what is the psalmist saying here? He's saying with this declaration of God's creative ability, he's saying that God is the one who has a power over life and death. And because God's the only one who can create life and God's the only one who can determine how long that life will live, in short, the one who controls life and death is the one who has all power. That's why we can say God is omnipotent. The one who controls life and the one who controls death is the one who has all power. He has all power. God is not passive. He's not a passive participator in his creation. He's actively participating. 
He's actively working his plan for his glory. He is creating life. He is sustaining life. And he is the only one who determines the boundaries of life. And sometimes we'll argue with God and we'll fight with God and we resist his power and we'll question God and we'll say, God, if you knew everything that was going to take place in human history and you, and, and, and you had this plan, why the evil, why the sin, why the suffering, why the pain, why the cancer, why the disease? If you have all power, you, you create life and you can end life. And we question and we question and we wonder why, why, why? We're okay at times with his omniscience and his omnipresence, but when we know that he's all-powerful and he could stop and he could prevent and, and we sit back and we question and we sometimes we find ourselves like Job. Do you remember Job? Job, blessed be, the, blessed be God who gives and takes away. Job lost it all. He lost everything but his wife. He lost his kids. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his possessions. He has his friends who are telling him, his wife's telling him to curse God and die, and his, his friends won't quit talking. And Job is questioning God, and he goes and he questions, and he questions God's omnipotence. He questions God's omniscience. He questions God's omnipresence. He questions the, the purity and the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. And I, and, and I love God's answer to Job. And, and in essence, it's God's answer to all of us, finite beings, who ever sit back and we, when we ponder the attributes of God and His power and His might and all that He is, sometimes we can question, but God, here is God's answer to us. I love it in the New Living Translation. Listen to Job 38, three sections of Job 38. God speaking to Job and speaking to us as mere humans. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Have you ever, Job, been? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you ever made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all of this. You see the sarcasm? Of course you know all of this. For you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. You get the point? God is giving to Job? Yeah, Job. You know, because you were born before it was ever created. The only one that was there before everything was created was God. And I know this is, this is heavy and this is, this, is, this is difficult to ponder and to think about God's character and His attributes and His omniscience and His omnipresence and His omnipotence, but, but, but it is such a comforting reality to know that God's power does have no limits. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and He is the ending. He was at the beginning before there was a beginning. God started time. He said, here's when it's going to begin. Here's, where, here's when I'm going to create life to glorify my name. Here's, here's, here's when I'm going to put sun and moon and stars in place so that I can receive glory. He started it all and he'll end it all. He started the time of our earthly existence and he will end it. I just want to tell you, global warming will not extinguish God's plan for this earth if there is such a thing. 
You know, I got a text the other day. Random text from some government agency. It said this. Donate $25 to support justice for the environment. You know, there's a lot of places I can send my money. $25 of it. And supporting justice for the environment is not one of them. This earth will continue. Seed time and harvest will continue as long as there are people on this planet. Now, we're trying to reshape society, are we not? We're trying to change it to where people, to where people stop making babies. But as long as we keep making babies and we're still on planet earth, until God says time will be no more, we will be on this earth. Because God's the one who determines time. He is omnipotent. He has all the power. The real issue of justice is not justice for the environment. The real problem we face today is this, is that the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings, have violated his law and have abandoned him, and God demands justice for rebelling against his omnipotence. That's the justice issue. The earth doesn't need justice. God demands justice for rebelling against him because he is all-powerful. He's omniscient. He is omnipresent. He holds all power. God's power has no limit. His jurisdiction has no boundary. He who, he who has all power and all authority, who created life, sustains life, who will end life, is the one who is ruling and reigning right now. Amen? So what have we learned so far today before we go get a grease burger? God's knowledge lacks nothing. Amen? It's good. And look, if you're sitting here today and, and that understanding of God's omniscience brings you to terror because you're hiding secret sins, repent. Repent. God knows. What are you hiding for? Bring it to the light. But I pray that this reality of God's omniscience is such a comforting reality, right? He knows everything about me. So we've learned he has perfect knowledge. He lacks nothing. God's presence knows no boundaries. All the runners, stop running. He's there when you get there. And God's power has no limit. Amen? So we'll end where we started. Are you a big godder or a little godder? What is your view of God? What's your view of God here today? What's your view of God? I'll, I'll, I'll make it plain for us. Here's how your view of God impacts your life right now. Your view of God impacts your life right now in this way. Is there anything going on in our country right now and around the world that is taking God by surprise? That's how your view of God impacts your life. You've been watching too much cable news network news. You've been watching too much Fox News. You're worried about Tucker Carlson. What's going to happen to Tucker? Tucker will be okay. Right? What's happening with this election? What's happening with this? And what's happening with this policy? What's happening here and there? And we have reason to concern. If there's any reason for concern, I actually love what Tucker said in his speech at the Heritage Foundation. He said, take 10 minutes of your day and pray for your country. Did y'all hear him say that? I don't know if Tucker's a believer or not, but, boy, what a convicting thing to say. 
What's your view of God? Is there anything going on in our country and around the world that's taking God by surprise? Is there anything anywhere his presence will not be? Is there anything politically, socially, internationally that is too much for God's power to take care of? What's the answer? No. All right, now let's bring it home. What's your view of God? You believe in a big God? An able God? A powerful God? A God who answers prayers? Do we, do we still believe God answers prayers today? Oh, sometimes we get so high and holy and theological, we think God doesn't answer prayers. Are you kidding me? God commands us to pray. What's your view of God? If your view of God moves you to a posture of an absence of prayer, you have the wrong view of God. Is there any situation you face, you face, not, not in America, not, not in the world, not internationally, is there any situation you face, trial you walk through, fear you have, anxiety that you carry, that's too difficult for a God who knows us completely, is with us always, and has no limit to his power, is there anything in our life that God cannot handle? Is there anything? You can talk to me. No. No. So that's what we learned today. That's how high theology meets us right here. That's why you study God. That's why we study God. That's why we study His attributes. That's why we, want, why we study the Bible, because we want to know God high and holy and lifted up so that it can, it can change my life. I can live differently. Because I know who God is, and I know he's in control, and I know he's omniscient, I know he's everywhere, and I know he has all power, and it changes the way I live my life. Right now, I look at the world around me differently. They're going to hell in a handbasket, and we pray for their salvation. I look at my cancer diagnosis differently. I look at all the troubles and trials I go through differently because I know who God is. Amen? So I end with this. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Amen? Amen.